it's going to be similar to, I would say, like mental health before it was taboo and people didn't understand. And it's like, just pull yourself up on your bootstraps you know, and put a smile on, just cheer up. It's going to be the same with obesity. Instead of just like, hey, you need to put the fork down. They're going to understand the biological underpinnings of it. And this doesn't mean we shouldn't be working on our environment too. Yeah, we should be working on the environment. We need to prevent obesity before it occurs, but we also need tools to help treat the obesity once it occurs too. What is happening, everyone? Emily Abadi here. You are listening to episode 278 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential and, of course, have some fun along the way. First and foremost, I'll address my voice. It's been better, but the show must go on, literally. So today I am bringing you my conversation with Dr. Spencer Nadolsky. He is the medical director of WW and Sequence. He is also an obesity and lipid specialist physician. Say that five times fast. Today, we are talking all about GLP-1 medications, an extremely controversial topic, something that we've been talking about now as a society for a greater part of the past year. For those of you that do not know, GLP-1 medications are what we commonly hear to be Ozempic, Wagovi, medicines that are injected and used as a tool for weight loss. As someone who personally has a history of weight loss, and Dr. Nadolsky and I talk about that in today's episode, it was really interesting to me when these came on the scene. I, I'll just give you my stance. I feel like if you can speak with a physician, you qualify for one of these medications, and it is something that you are interested in going on, going on and using in a safe way, then you're entirely entitled to do whatever you feel is right for you and your body. There are two things that concern me. One, that we don't know the long-standing effects of something like this because they are so new to the market. And also, when individuals abuse these medications, maybe they obtain something like this from a concierge doctor who may not always play by the rules. So we talk about both of those things today, and I really appreciate Dr. Nadolsky's expertise on the topic. We cover everything you need to know, what these medications do, what they are, how they interact with the body, what the side effects could be, who could be a good candidate to go on a medication like this, why it's important to be conscious of your environment, whether or not you are interested in this type of treatment, if you are interested in weight loss. And of course, we talk about the controversy around these drugs. And Dr. Nadolsky, as I mentioned, the medical director over at Weight Watchers, talks about their decision to acquire Sequence as well as their first-of-its-kind GLP-1 program, which offers specialized behavioral support focusing on nutrition and activity program formation to support those who are already on their own GLP-1 journey. 
like I've said before, it's so important for me to have big conversations like this on the show. So I hope that you find this insight valuable. And if you have any additional questions, feel free to ask it by leaving me a voice message. The link to do that is in the show notes at Emily Abadi at Hurdle Podcast. With that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Spencer Nadolsky. He's a board-certified family physician specializing in obesity medicine and lipidology. He's also the medical director of WW and Sequence. How are you doing today, Spencer? Doing great. I'm in Michigan. It's getting cold here, but I went for a run before this podcast, so I'm good. I know. I need to make sure that we uh, let the hurdlers, my audience, what I call them, in on the intel that you also are a podcaster yourself. You have a podcast with your brother called Docs Who Lift. I love this. Yeah, yeah that's right. We we uh, promote exercise as medicine. Obviously, lifting weights, but we you know we we do a lot of aerobic training as well. Also, two doctors in the family. Pretty fun for your uh, parents, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. They're proud of us, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. We are getting together to talk about GLP-1 medication. It's something that has certainly made its fair share of headlines over the last 365 and beyond. Now, before we get into all of the FAQs. I want to make sure that I learn a little bit about you, especially because getting into the field of obesity medicine, lipidology, uh, definitely a niche interest. So what inspired you to get onto this side of medicine? Yeah, I grew up in a very athletically and academically minded uh, family. Uh, both parents were uh, school teachers. My brother's obviously into athletics and academics as well. And so Got into science to be good at athletics, did really well, uh, went to wrestle at UNC Chapel Hill. I was their heavyweight, did pretty well there. And, and when I went into medical school, everybody was like, you're going to be a sports medicine doctor. You're going to help athletes get better. And I was like, I don't want to help athletes get better. It's like, to me, it's just kind of boring. I know, sorry, there's a lot of other people that like doing that. But I, what I thought was more fulfilling was actually helping be people become athletes, like people that didn't move at all, people that were having type 2 diabetes and chronic disease and helping them either prevent those things from happening or actually reversing or putting those things into remission, giving them a fraction of the passion or the obsession I have with diet and exercise, nutrition and exercise, just giving them a little bit and preventing and and, uh, treating those chronic diseases. So as I went through medical school, it it was kind of a newer... um, a specialty back then. There were some people doing it and they didn't have that great of medicines back then. And bariatric surgery is, of course, uh, another thing. But as I went through medical school and then residency, uh, it was starting to become the, these newer drugs and these newer technologies were starting to come out and the specialty really gained some traction. And they actually created this board of obesity medicine right at the end of my residency. So I was able to get that certification right after uh, residency. So for anybody listening, you go through four years of medical school and then you do something called residency, which is where you choose your specialty. I chose to do a very broad one called family medicine. You can do internal medicine, which is just adults, pediatrics. You could do um, uh, OBGYN, surgeries, all sorts of different things. So I chose the broadest of them all and then decided to specialize off of that. And so and the other thing is, I really think that our current medical system is so archaic. So I was really passionate about different ways of delivering healthcare that weren't 
the same traditional 15 minutes with a patient. I would do Facebook lives at lunchtime and I'd feel like I was helping more people during my quick little live than I did like in a whole day of seeing people in the clinic. It was really interesting. So that's kind of where I got to today. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. And I can relate to that concept of feeling really fulfilled with your opportunity to help people at a larger scale, seeing those one-on-one patients, there's so much value in that. But when you can really utilize the knowledge that you have to help a wider group of people, it's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly, that's exactly it. It was just like, and I felt like I was still getting the deep, meaningful help with them, not just superficial uh, help, but it was like deep, meaningful and wider, a larger net. So that's why now that we're doing telemedicine and all sorts of different ways of delivering care. Yeah. So when it comes to, we talked about obviously the, or you mentioned the four years of medical school and the residency program, when it comes to then specializing in the fields that you specialize, what does obtaining that specialization look like? Yeah. So currently, because it's so new, you just, you have to go get what's called the continuing medical education. You have to go to conferences and things, and then you take a a board exam. What usually it ends up is they, you eventually have to take a one-year fellowship where you go from residency, which is usually three or so years. And then you go one more or two more years in an actual setting where you keep learning that. Right now, because it's so new, um, they, they have it set up to where you go to different lectures and all these things. Then you take a, a, an exam after about a year. But eventually that's, that's, that's the idea of, that's a lot of, all this, a lot of specialties have uh, started that way and then moved over into like a legit fellowship type of situation. Okay. And then just a little bit more context before we dive into the meat and potatoes of our discussion today, where along this journey for you in this specialization, did you come into connection with WW and Sequence? Yeah. So uh, I graduated residency in 2014, got my uh, board certification in obesity shortly after. Uh, went to private practice, worked with a few different groups, actually jumped into uh, a, a telemedicine group in 2016 and really started exploring these new uh, ways of delivering care, doing obesity medicine online, lipidology online, and just lifestyle medicine online in general. And then in 2021 is when Wegovi or semaglutide was approved for obesity or weight management specifically. And there were a couple of these uh, engineers who found me on Twitter and just said, hey, um, have you ever thought about doing like an obesity medicine program online? I'm like, yeah, that's what I've always wanted to do. I'm not a startup guy. So if you guys are startup guys, let's let's do it. And what we did is we <laughs> these guys were you know smart engineers. They developed a whole uh, like electronic medical record system, kind of how I just told them to do it based on what I think would be efficient for both the provider, the, the doctor or nurse practitioner, or whoever, and then also for the patient, give them good care, uh, make them have a good experience while also giving the clinician good experience. And I knew we were going to do really well because I, other programs that were out there, I, I didn't see them as much on social media and I'm very good at social media. And we, we delivered great care while also doing a great job at marketing. And within it was within a year we blew up. We had you know thousands and thousands of patients. Uh, we were it started with just me as the the physician. Then we had I don't know how many dozens of clinicians that were under me. And uh, what happened was uh, Weight Watchers wanted me to be um, 
a scientific advisor and they hadn't heard of our program yet, but they were interested in getting into uh, the clinical space. And so we started talking and yada, yada, yada. They said, hey, we want to add this clinical arm to our program. And it was a perfect fit because they're, you know, the number, here's the number one behavioral commercial weight loss program in the world. And we, at the time, you know, we're the top, what I would consider the top telemedicine obesity program. But, you know, it's still that that is in its infancy. The whole, you know, that whole niche is in its infancy, but we're the top top ones and we're going to kind of combine and make this uh, work for everybody kind of hit this whole what I'd call the spectrum of what we'd call weight health so there's behavioral and then once people need more help than that they need to get into medical and even surgical uh, tools to help them with losing weight and keeping it off got it so for those that aren't completely in the loop on sequence you did just kind of give a rundown on how it works but I do want to make sure that we really dial in to the specifics of how it works, because I think there is a lot of questions around perhaps the safety of something like this. So let's start first and foremost with what it might look like for someone who goes to sequence, which, as you mentioned, is a uh, clinical arm now of WW, uh, seeking perhaps a weight loss drug like a semaglutide, which we'll get into that in just a second as well. Yeah. So my my biggest thing was I need to make sure we are doing this safe. We cannot start giving this medicine out to those who don't qualify. That was like a big push of mine cuz you know a lot of a lot of people start these startup companies and you know you've seen these places uh in the media and all sorts of all sorts of things are happening. So my I wanted to make sure it was safe. I wanted to make sure we're doing appropriate prescribing. So the way we set it up is basically you can't even get through the intake quiz unless on paper you would qualify be- before you even see a clinician. So you go through this intake quiz that would make sure that, sure, you have a BMI. So that for anybody listening, these drugs are only approved for those uh, with it from an FDA guideline standpoint, for those who have a BMI, body mass index. And say what you want about BMI, it's just it's it's what they had have at the time or right now. It will get better in the future with how to diagnose obesity. But BMI of 30 and above, or a BMI body mass index of 27 and above, plus what's called a comorbidity. A comorbidity is anything related to uh, obesity or weight that is a medical problem. So think about hypertension, high blood pressure, hyperglycemia, you know, pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, higher blood sugars, those types of things. Even things like uh, obstructive sleep apnea, maybe osteoarthritis in your knees, those types of things. So if you have a 30 and above, you, you technically qualify via FDA guidelines. If you have a 27 plus one of these other weight-related things, uh, you would also qualify. So you, you have to have that at first. But then there's, there's, a, there's a, a, a few other things that you want to make sure that you're not missing. You want to make sure people aren't pregnant, breastfeeding, those types of things. These drugs you don't want to use while people are pregnant or breastfeeding. Um, there are some other black box warnings like family history of medullary thyroid cancer. It's a type of, a very rare type of thyroid cancer, but, and we can get into why that is later. And then you also want to see what medicines they're on. You know, do they, do they have a primary care doctor, all sorts of things. So you want to make sure that these people are having a, like should appropriately at least get through. Cause what, what you will see if you don't have those things in, there's a lot of people wanting to use these drugs just for vanity, what I'd call vanity weight loss. They don't have health problems. They're metabolically healthy. 
you know, they, they may be in what's considered this uh, normal BMI range, which I don't like that term, but like their, their, their weight, they're healthy for their weight and they might want to lose five to 10 pounds and they want these drugs, but like not appropriate to be prescribing these medicines in those types of, of patients, at least right now. And it's not studied uh, at this right. time. So we wanted to stay away from that. And then once you get through the intake quizzes, everything looks good. Then you are then evaluated by a clinician because then certain things you might chat through the chat. They can do it. What's called asynchronously, which uh, may seem odd because, because people are used to seeing somebody face to face when they see a doctor, but because of scheduling and um, people, you know, people work, they don't want to take an hour off, off of work to do a telemedicine. So you might be able to chat back and forth. There are some states that allow that. Some states you have to be seen face to face synchronously via video. But through the, that uh, evaluation, then the, the clinician decides whether that person is, is the right fit. And then after that, it's, it sounds more complicated than this, but there's what's called a prior authorization. So then the insurance companies, they also want to make sure this is an appropriate patient. So then we have a whole team, which is one of the secret sauces we have, is that we have a whole team that does these prior authorizations. And it's actually, it's actually a big reason why we do well is because when you go to a primary care doctor, they're inundated from patients wanting to get these medicines. These medicines are in high demand. And the prior authorization process and filling out, it's a, it's a real pain. It's a burden to, to the back office who's like, they're already got a lot of other stuff they got to do. And so now they have to fill out this long prior authorization. We have a whole team that does it for people. In fact, I was just on with a patient who specifically said like, hey, uh, the reason we chose you is because you guys are known to be good at these prior authorizations. So for anybody listening, insurance, it's like they don't want to pay for these medicines. They want to put you through hoops. And we help the patients jump through those hoops, basically, to uh, get the medicine. Now, someone listening to this might ask, okay, why is it that they want you to jump through these hoops? Why do you think that that is? Yeah, these medicines are expensive. They're extremely expensive. And it, there's a whole list of reasons why that is. And, you know, we, we could get into big pharma, these PBMs and the middlemen that start uh, negotiating rates. But the gist is that these medicines are expensive and insurances don't want to uh, cover them. Um, and, you know, I, I, I could understand that. I think in the future, what we're going to see are the prices are going to come down. Uh, there was only one player in the market, one, one manufacturer. Now there are two manufacturers in, in this world. And there's a whole list of manufacturers saying, you know, I'd say dollar signs if you really want to see, but they're seeing like, hey, this this class of drug is is somewhat miraculous and works extremely well. And if we can prove that we have another similar type of like peptides is what they are, these GLP one agonists, we have we can have one that's similar with about similar efficacy, amount of weight loss and safety and improving health. Then why not jump in? And we can make it cheaper. And then all of a sudden they start competing bunch of different options, then the prices should come down. Got it. Okay. So we've said these buzzwords a few times now, semaglutides, GLP-1 agonists. For those that are really just diving into the shallow end and new yeah. to understanding what we're even talking about here, why don't we give uh, a brief overview and set the table so they can understand how semaglutide interacts with the body? 
Yeah, so these are GLP-1 agonists, glucagon-like peptide 1. It's, it's, you don't need to know much more than that, but GLP-1 agonists, the, we have naturally occurring GLP-1 that's released from our intestines. Now, we may say, well, then, like, do we have GLP-1 deficiencies? Is that why we start gaining weight? It's, it's, no, that's not true at all. Um, we, you know, as we gain weight, our GLP-1 works quite well uh, in our own body. The thing is, is that our own GLP-1 is broken down very quickly within minutes. So we can't just even make natural GLP-1 and start injecting it or find different foods to hopefully boost our own GLP-1. It's, it's broken down so quickly. So what these researchers, just brilliant researchers did uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, they, they actually found a little lizard um, and, and they were trying to find ways to mimic this GLP-1 because they started seeing the actions of it in the body. And they found ways to then have this GLP-1, a, a different type of GLP-1, not our own natural, uh, something similar that hit the receptors, but that didn't break down as quickly. So the first one was that Exenatide or Bietos, the brand name, came out in 2005. So people thinking these are brand new drugs and scary because we don't know much about them. They're not. They're, they've been out for almost two decades, not uh, not completely yet, but definitely studied for two decades now. But the first one was an injectable twice a day. Then they got smarter researchers getting better at making these little peptides. And they, they found a once a day, more effective one. Then it got into, then they found they found ways to make it once a week. Uh, there, there are a couple out uh, back in the 2010s. Then semaglutide. So semaglutide was the newer one uh, in 2017. That was Ozempic was is the name everybody hears about. That's the type two diabetes branded version. Semaglutide though, then they upped the dose because in, in Ozempic it only went up to one milligram at the time. It goes up to two milligrams now, but they studied it in 2.4 milligrams, uh, a much higher dose, and they found it. This this works extremely well for weight loss. In fact, older drugs like we would, the, the standard of care was looking at like FDA would look like, can, can a lot of people lose at least 5% of their weight from a, a weight loss medicine or weight management medicine? The reason they picked 5% is because that's where you start seeing pretty good improvements in your health. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, once you get the 10%, 15, 20%, you get many more and more massive improvements in your health. You don't start seeing improvements in sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea until you hit like 10% or more. But the marker they used before was 5%. And so the older drugs, you know, that we had uh, something called Qsimia. That was okay. It combined fentramine and topiramate. That was around, you know, 10%. But semaglutide in the, in the dose of 2.4 milligrams of Wegovy, that's when 2021 hit this uh, first study that came out looking at obesity. And this one, it was around 15%. So now all of a sudden the average weight loss jumped up from this 5 to 10% range, now up to 15% which was massive. It was a, it was a, a, you know, what they said, said in the newspaper, a game changer. And, you know, why, why didn't the drug, why didn't Ozempic go crazy back in 2017 or, you know, before the 2020s? It's because nobody really knew about it. We all knew as clinicians, we knew, I was like, you know, we were prescribing it back then, but not until this Wegovy came out to where there was a big study and then people are like, hey, this stuff really works for, mm. for weight loss, losing weight, keeping it off. And it seems to be safe in those with type 2 diabetes at the time, reducing risks of, of heart attacks and all sorts of stuff like that. 
And I know that the study that you're mentioning, this was uh, during a time period that was a little bit more than a year compared to, you said that 15%-ish baseline of weight loss versus people that were using a placebo, which was closer to something like 2.4%. So really big difference here when it comes to uh, assisted weight loss using the semaglutide versus no semaglutide. Yeah. So that's, that's the other thing. Cause people are like, well, of course they're injecting themselves. It's probably cause of the diet and exercise. It's like, no, they had a placebo where they gave the exact same lifestyle uh, advice too. And they only lost a few percent. So yeah, massive, massive improvements. And then to jump on top of that research, the, the technology is just getting better and better. The newest one, uh, which is called terzepatide is actually a glucagon like peptide one GLP one slash GIP what they call a coagonist. It's hitting two different receptors in the body. And that one is now hitting over 20%. So we went from five to 10%, then 15%, which is great. Now we're hitting over 20%. And maybe, maybe the longer you take it, we're getting into 20, you know, mid 20%. And then there's drugs coming down the pipeline. They're not out yet. We're probably going to hit that 30% uh, range. And for people, just to put that in perspective, bariatric surgery is that 30% range. So we're okay. now we're getting just massive amounts of weight loss. And also to put it in perspective, because we start talking about a percentage of, of weight, it's like, what does that even mean? I just want to lose 30 pounds or what, you know what I mean? So let's just say you are, you know, 200 pounds. Let's say you qualify for the medicine, you know, 10% would be 20 pounds, right? Of 200 pounds, 15% would, would be, you know, 30, 30 pounds and, and, you know, and 20% would be 40 pounds. So that's average, by the way, you see a spectrum of some people don't respond super well to these medicines. That's rare, but you do see it. And then some people are what we call like hyper responders. They'll respond extremely well to the medicine. So you see a, a big range. It's just that that average 15% for semaglutide and 20 or so percent for terzepatide, the newest one. Um, it's pretty interesting to see. For those that are on the semaglutide, what happens within the body? Yeah. So how this drug works, so they they made it for type 2 diabetes originally because of the, the way that it helped the pancreas release more insulin. It reduces another uh, hormone called glucagon, which increases your blood sugar. So it helps you lower your blood sugar. But over long run, with your losing weight, it also improves your blood sugar. The way this works for those without type 2 diabetes, though, um, and just for for losing weight, these uh, GLP-1 hits receptors in the brain that helps with appetite. And, you know, it's like, oh, I don't need something to make me less hungry. But like people talk about this term called food noise. I don't know if you've heard of this term, but it's it's a pretty good term to describe intrusive thoughts about food. So I always talk about it like you might eat a super healthy meal. You just let's just be like cliche and you're like chicken breast and broccoli and brown rice, you know, so, so like, so cliche, but let's just say you're eating a high volume of, of, of low calorie, high protein, high fiber, um, healthy foods, let's say. But afterwards you're like, I'm, I, I feel full, but I'm not like necessarily like what you call satiated. So your stomach's kind of full and you're like, I should be full, but I'm like, I still want to, I want to eat some potato chips. I, I want to eat some pie, some cookies, some cake, like those, the, the food noise, you're still thinking about food. You're thinking about your next meal. You're thinking about having another serving, despite like, you know, like I should be fine right now. These 
medicines, what the patients literally tell me, they say they make it make them feel like what someone who's never had to worry about their weight must feel like after a normal meal. It's that's about as it's about as good of a description as you could give it because you know, you, you see people that they can apparently eat whatever they want. And what happens in those cases, people are like, oh, they must burn it off. It's like, well, no, they're in those cases, a lot of times, not all the times, but in a lot of times, they're actually not eating as much throughout the day. They they can eat pizza and eat all these other things and, and their body's satisfied. While other people will eat that same food and their their minds, the the wires, I call them like they're kind of frayed. There might be some short circuits in the in the brain and the appetite centers. Um, they still will seek more food, and these these re- these drugs basically hit receptors in the brain that that dampen that signal to a point where they they say like I can't explain it, but I don't I'm not thinking about food all the time. And in fact, their anxiety and relationships with food all improve as well. I can't say for everybody, but for most people that that we see. Someone hears these things, reduced food noise, I get to eat pizza and still lose weight. And they're like, oh my God, this sounds awesome. But also, I worry about the concepts of I can eat all of these things and still lose weight and then get to a point where maybe you go off of this medication and you've learned actually nothing about nourishing yourself. What do you say to people that are a little unsure on that front? Yeah, this I mean, this is where we step in with our behavioral component, because we also think the same way. We, we want to make sure that people are nourishing their body. And there's what I would say, quality of weight loss. And also it's not just about weight loss. It's about the improvement of their health while they're doing it. So anybody could just lose weight. Like if, if we could just give these medicines out like candy and, and people lose weight and, and if their weight improves, their health could improve. But there could be all, there. It's not optimal. We want to make sure people aren't just eating non-nourishing foods while just losing weight. Because as you said, some people will come off the medicines. These medicines are meant to be taken long term. Um, I just want to mention that like we think of obesity as a chronic disease, just like we think of type 2 diabetes or hypertension. And in those cases, like hypertension, people, they're doing everything they can from a lifestyle standpoint. And they'll have to get on what's called like an ACE inhibitor or some blood pressure medicine. Their blood pressure will go down and get into a good range. It would be like stopping that blood pressure medicine only to watch their their blood pressure jump back up. The same happens with obesity. Not everybody, by the way, but most people, when you stop the medicine, uh, their weights start going up because we think of obesity more of a chronic uh, relapsing, remitting type of disease. Now, in terms of like trying to help with behavior, because these drugs work so well, that's where we jump in. This is what our, our GLP-1 companion program does. We're, we're seeing this with people. If, if you don't give any behavior with it, they'll lose weight. Like the medicine, they'll just eat less of what they're doing, right? And if it's pizza or whatever, they'll, they'll just eat less of it. Uh, however, they could get side effects eating those types of things. Because sometimes when you eat heavier, uh, very fatty, kind of greasy foods, it doesn't sit well. So what we are doing is we're making sure that you're having some behavior change and eating more of the, the nutrient dense types of foods, getting enough protein. There's a worry of muscle loss with these because people lose massive amounts of weight. And if you don't eat anything, you lose muscle. If you don't lift weights, if you don't do any type of exercise, you can lose muscle along with this. So 
we put a big emphasis on making sure you're getting those micronutrients, the, the vitamins and minerals that you should be getting, because if you're not eating enough, you won't be getting enough of those. So we want to make sure that people are getting those. We want to make sure people are getting enough protein, and we want to make sure people are getting enough physical activity. And the truth is some people will want to come up, despite we call, you know, even if we call obesity, it's a chronic disease and these medicines are meant to be taken long-term. There will be people that uh, want to come off these medicines and you do have to give the behaviors that hopefully they can sustain when they come off. Um, and then there will be people, there will be insurances that might not cover it long-term, unfortunately too. And so we want to give them their best shot at that. But ultimately, we do want to improve what we call non-scale health uh, measures. Because again, you take somebody who has a what I'd call like a poor quality diet versus someone who's exactly the same. They're just a twin. They have everything else the same, except their quality of diet is uh, more like the highly processed, very low uh, nutrient dense types of foods. And it's probable, at least there's good evidence to say that the, the person with the poor quality of, of diet is probably going to have worse health outcomes over the long run. So regardless of weight loss, we do want to make sure that these people are uh, have improving their lifestyle. Taking a break from today's episode to give some love to uh, something that's been in my personal wellness toolbox for years now. That is a G1. It's my all-in-one daily greens powder that's got 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced nutrients in one convenient daily serving. With the antioxidant equivalent of 12 servings of fruits and vegetables, as well as prebiotics, probiotics, adaptogens, and superfoods, it's hard for me to think about what my life was like before I was regularly incorporating AG1 into my routine. No matter what is going on with my diet, how often I'm eating out, especially with the holidays, this can get a little bit nutty this time of year. I know that beginning my day with AG1 is me doing something really good and investing in my own personal health and well-being. With AG1, I have notable benefits to my energy levels. I feel more motivated and it actually tastes good. And I don't say that like it tastes good for a greens powder. Like I look forward to drinking my AG1 every single day as a standalone product. Of course, AG1 has a deal for you. If you want to get in on the gang today, cannot recommend it enough. Head on over to drinkag1.com slash hurdle to get five free travel packs and a year's supply of vitamin D absolutely free. Again, head on over to drinkag1.com slash hurdle to get a year's supply of vitamin D as well as five free travel packs with your order. Also, got to give some love to my friends at Element. Element makes no BS electrolytes with everything you need and nothing you don't. It is science-backed and it cuts out sugars, fillers, gluten, and other dodgy ingredients that are in a lot of those sports drinks you're reaching for when you go to your bodega or your local market. As much as I love drinking my Element before, during, and after my workouts, this time of year, I cannot get enough of their chocolatey flavors after dinner. That's right. Element is now my go-to dessert. I make a cup of hot water. I pour in a stick of that chocolate caramel element. I top it with a little coconut whip and wow, five calories. So delicious. And I'm taking care of my body while seriously 
self-indulging. Talk about the perfect stocking stuffer. I know right now we're trying to think about what to get everyone on our holiday lists. And uh, I'd say that this is a safe bet. Of course, we have an awesome deal for the Hurdle listeners. Head on over to drinkelement.com. That's drinklmnt.com slash hurdle to get a free Element sample pack with your purchase today. Again, that address to get your freebies. Head on over to drinkelement, drinklmnt.com slash hurdle. What I'm hearing you say is that a lot of the people that are on uh, uh, semaglutide will basically eat the way that they would or could eat on WW without the food noise. So I'm likening this to my experience with WW. I lost about 70 pounds back in college. Uh, at the time, semaglutide was obviously not on my radar, but it beckons the question for those individuals that may be in this higher BMI category, as we spoke about, but haven't tried a conventional weight loss program, what are the pros versus the cons of then immediately jumping to something like a semaglutide instead of simply trying to follow something like WW or being more cognizant of portion size, what you're putting into your body, more traditional weight loss methods? Yeah, most people should I mean most people usually try to do some sort of weight loss uh, diet and exercise before so a lot of my patients they have already done some sort of behavioral program but it's if they hadn't it basically helps people do what they know they should do they just can't do does that make sense so like let's say they do weight watchers our core program and they're like oh, they have some success and we have we see it all the time there's some people that will just have success and it's like, great. And they just keep doing it and they keep the weight off. Great. But there, you know, there's going to be some people that their body starts fighting back and they're going to feel it. It's like, it's, it's the food noise. It's the appetite drivers. It's the energy. And, and it's really difficult for a lot of people to stick to that lifestyle. So basically add in these medicines, boop, boop, hits these receptors in the brain. It's like, oh, it, it helps them then calm down all that food noise, calm all those other signals from their body and helps them basically do, do the lifestyle that we're recommending. They just, their body wouldn't allow them to do it, if that makes sense. I want to talk about side effects. You said this buzzword early in our conversation, definitely a concern for many who are contemplating going the route of being on one of these medications. What do we know so far? Yeah. Most common side effect is nausea and GI side effects. So nausea is number one. It's mild to moderate for most people. And it, for most people, it resolves over time. You'll see it in the beginning when you start the medicine and you will might see it every time you what we call titrate up, go up in a dose. And then you get to what's called your maintenance dose at some point. And um, for most people, the side effect of nausea resolves. One thing about our, our GLP-1 companion program, so this is a program that you can do whether you, you get the medicine through our WW clinic versus getting it from your primary care doctor, we've basically made the dietary changes in, in, in a program like fashion to hopefully lessen. Now we can't, you know, we can't make that claim and, and whatever, but it should, the way we set it up, it should uh, decrease uh, the risk of certain side effects because the way you eat actually does 
like I said, if somebody eats pizza, they'll know, they'll know the next day, like I probably shouldn't have done that because now I'm feeling really nauseous. The food's kind of sitting in their stomach. Um, so the way you eat does uh, have an effect there. But for most people, mild to moderate resolves for most. There will be a subset of people that get more moderate to severe nausea. It's a risk. You know, most people don't start vomiting and have to go to the hospital, but it does happen from time to time. The reason our WW clinic, the reason I think it's great, as opposed to like going to a primary care doctor or someone you see once a month, we have very proactive um, uh, care. So like the doctor and our care team's always right there. So if you start getting side effects, first of all, we want to minimize, we want to even prevent them from happening. That's why we have our GLP-1 companion nutrition program. And we have dietitians to make sure that, hey, eat in a way that we know is going to reduce risk of side effects. However, not there's still going to be people that have side effects. So what we do is jump in. We can jump in with, uh, you know, does this person need to go to the hospital? No. Hopefully we can jump in with anti-nausea medicines. There are anti-nausea medicines. And no, not everybody should be taking these medicines to have nausea, only to take another medicine to combat the nausea. And one of the common questions that we get is like, okay, so people are just nauseous all the time and that's the, why they're not eating. It's no, they've done studies on this. It's not the nausea that makes people lose. In fact, the nausea resolves and, and the satiety and all that food noise is down. So it's not the nausea, but unfortunately some people do still get nausea, but that's what I really like about our proactive approach because we prevent it and then we can jump in uh, if we need to, whereas other places it's, I can't even get a hold of my, my doctor. I'm going to have to go to the ER, get some fluids to make sure that, uh, I don't get dehydrated or some type of thing. The, Outside of the nausea, what are other possible yeah. side effects? Constipation. We see constipation. It slows down your GI tract. So, uh, you do see some constipation again, being proactive. We, in our program, we make sure people are drinking enough fluid that obviously helps with constipation, enough fiber, and then physical activity, even just even just going for more walks and more steps during the day should help uh, your GI transit, getting the, the food through your system. So preventing the constipation is very important. And then, of course, on top of that, you can take psyllium husk, you can do magnesium and other types of uh, things to improve the uh, constipation. Sometimes we see diarrhea resolves pretty quickly. Reflux is another thing because, again, you slow down the gastric emptying, the, how well your stomach releases food through the intestines. And so sometimes we see uh, people who, especially if they have a history of reflux, it can, it can worsen uh, acutely. But sometimes we do see fatigue and people think that it's from not eating enough. But there's something about the drug that, may, that we're seeing may cause fatigue. But again, it resolves for anybody that gets it. It resolves for pretty much everybody that gets that. Other, there's there's some other very rare side effects, but by by far the most common one is is nausea. Then then there's reflux and uh, constipation, and sometimes diarrhea. And what you mentioned about ramping up on this medication, I would liken it maybe to ramping up on some sort of anxiety medication, right? Uh, what does that process look like? Because you said that as a byproduct of that ramp up, some of the side effects that someone could experience with these may lessen over time as the body gets used to it. Is that the right language there? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's some patients that are like, just throw me on the high dose. And it's like, no, you hear of stories like that. Sometimes a pharmacist will dispense the wrong medicine, unfortunately, the wrong dose. And a lot of those people end up in the hospital because it, it, their body's not used to it. And it comes as a big shock. They're not used to the, to the, this type of, uh, 
physiological effect or super physiological effect, I should say. Um, so yeah, it's very important to start a low dose body gets used to it. Okay. Let's go up body gets used to it. Okay. Let's go up. And so for, for Wegovy specifically, you start at 0.25 milligrams, you go up to 0.5 milligrams and you go to one milligram, then you go to 1.7, then 2.4 for the newest one called Zepbound, which is the terzepatide stuff. You start at 2.5 milligrams, you go to five milligrams and you go to seven and a half, then 10, then 12 and a half, then 15. Right. And, um, you know, it's, it's because of the shortages that we saw in a, in a while, it's possible that some people may skip around in doses, but it, it, that can increase your risk of, of getting these side effects. Cause when you jump up too quickly, too fast, um, your body's not used to it. So uh, that's exactly how it works. The other thing that I want to make sure that we double click on is how we're making sure that the right people are getting their hands on this. I know you talked extensively about the vetting process for someone to get this through sequence in the WW clinic, but what's not to say that someone could give their phone to someone else who's obese and have them put in all of their information and then end up with something harmful. Yeah, it's, you know, those things are really tough to get by because like even in the clinic, you could have your friend go in, get them the prescription. And then afterwards, they can be like, all right, here you go. Here's the prescription for you. But we we have some safeguards in place. We make sure we have them take a picture. We have them take a picture on a scale to start off with just to verify uh, their weight. Uh, We get medical records. We get labs and all these different things. There's no, you know, complete foolproof way to say like, but I would say out of anybody doing it out there, I'm, 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 I'm pretty sure I can say this. I'm, we're, we have to be one of the safest, safest, if not, uh, we, cause that was my thing. I want to make sure that we're not putting this in the wrong hands. I mean, you know, when we, it's funny cause some patient will flag and we'll look at it as a team, like, ah, is this, there's something going on here, you know, and you'll see, you'll see all sorts of, all sorts of things. And we want to make sure that only the correct people are, are getting this. We're very um, serious about it. We we don't want to become known as someone who's just increasing diet culture or, or doing this for just vanity weight loss purposes. We want to do this for true health purposes. From a physician standpoint, like we really want to hone in on improving health from a true indication of the medicine. You want to make sure that we're doing this for health purposes, not for just vanity purposes. Yeah. And I want to reiterate that obviously all of this is extremely interpretive, right? So one person may feel completely happy in a place like where I was back in college that I mentioned I lost a lot of weight and that's so fine. But I would be remiss if I didn't say that there were things about me at that time before the weight loss that were extremely unhealthy biomarkers that I needed to be concerned about. You said the words diet culture. So I do want to make sure that we also talk a little bit about that. Clearly this whole semaglutide situation. There's been so many people across the United States that have somehow gotten their hands on this. And now people have a really big negative stereotype oftentimes with the buzzword Ozempic, with the buzzword Wagovi. I want to know what your stance is on the people that are maybe shaming others who have leaned into these drugs because of the negativity that we've seen from Hollywood, A-listers, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's hard to get around. The people with a lot of money are going to find a way to get these drugs. I mean, whether it's their concierge doctor or their, they're going to go get it from a compounding pharmacy, which we don't do. We don't. We, we only do FDA approved versions. But, 
Yeah, you go to a concierge doctor, you're paying them thousands of dollars a year. The concierge doctor is probably going to follow what you what you want. Unfortunately, you know, people are like, but aren't doctors supposed to be? Yeah, you know, we should we should be prescribing it according to the label. But, you know, I don't know. People are human, I guess. So um, it's it's just it's it's really unfortunate about the, the whole Hollywood thing. But it's it's hard to stop them from doing it. So all I can do, my big messaging is like. Forget the vanity weight loss thing like it's not I strongly strongly discourage that use the people that are upset that people are you know taking this easy way out it's it's a little bit of ignorance they don't understand the what we call like the pathophysiology of the disease of obesity what they they see in those who have obesity is a lack of willpower and discipline and they just can't stop eating like just push yourself away from the table put your fork down and what they don't see are the internal cues, biological cues, mind you. This isn't discipline cues. It's, it's think of it as like an itch that, that like, just don't, just don't scratch it. And it's just getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Um, I have a, I, I've heard some other good analogies. Like think of it like you just didn't sleep last night and somebody else had the greatest sleep of their life and the person wants to fall asleep. And it's like, just don't be tired. Well, it's the same as telling somebody with that pathophysiological disease of obesity, like, J just stop eating so much. I don't understand. Why can't you just stop eating? And it's it's because they, they just haven't felt it, this internal drive to just like thinking about food. And so when someone is just like, I don't understand, why don't you just use diet next year? I, I posted a tweet yesterday about it. Uh, there's people always posting about it. It's, it's good. It's good fodder for social media because it gives me a, a a chance to talk about this, but like it shows ignorance and also a clear bias and stigma against those with obesity, just a complete misunderstanding of it. Because if, if it were just a discipline issue, then, then you're telling me that every, like most of the population uh, has a discipline issue and it's just not true. And then they're going to say, well, did you, are you saying genetics have changed? It's like, no, genetics are a part of it, but obviously our environment has changed. It's just that those who have a susceptibility and a wiring to to eating more calories than we burn, it's a it's a passive thing. Despite despite their their frontal cortex and them trying to fight against it. Whereas like someone like me, I'm naturally leaner. My body, you know, I can go eat whatever, and my body tends to just stay leaner. And I uh, I understand that. And so I think other people think that like, well, if I can do it, then other people should be able to do it, but they don't know what's going on in that other person's body. It's just, that's, that's all it is. It's, it's a lack of understanding. And so I, I used to get really mad about it. And now I'm just like, well, it's, they don't get it. So let me see if I can try to like teach them. And then if they hear enough patient stories and there's the stories are the same over and over, they all say the same thing. Like, I, I just, I can't, I can't explain it when, especially when they start the medicine, they just all say like, I feel what it must feel like to be someone that doesn't struggle with weight. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. So before when we were giving that example of the 200 pound person and that maybe they'll lose 15%, maybe they'll lose up to 30% eventually yeah. using a medication like this, who is to say, uh, via the medical intervention, when this person then comes off of this medication, if someone loses something like 40 to 60 pounds and they're now in a normal quote unquote BMI range, although you and I have already discussed the problems that come hand in hand with that, yeah. but they're in a healthier weight range. They're seeing a lot 
lot of the benefits that come with that percentage of overall fat loss. Who's to then modify that prescription should they need to come off of it? Or is that something that they would just stay on? Yeah, great question. There's, there's unfortunately a false, I would call it a false dichotomy that's occurring. So there's one group of people who say these are a short-term thing to lose the weight, then they got to come off. There's another group of uh, mostly physicians who are saying obesity is a chronic disease. They go on this medicine. Why would they ever stop? Well, the truth is, is that patients have autonomy. We don't have autonomy over insurances and whatnot either, but like they're will be a subset of patients. I will say most people will likely need to take some form of fashion or fashion of of a therapy, a biological therapy. It may not be a GLP-1. It may be a lower dose. It may be a spread out. Like for example, let's just use, uh, let's use terzapatide, Zepbound as for an example. They may get up to 15 milligrams and they're, they're like, they're, they lost a hundred pounds. And they want they want to wean off of it, so you start weaning them down. You get them down to two, the lowest dose of two and a half, and they're still keeping the weight off. And now they go from every seven days to every, you know, twelve to fourteen days, like every other week, and it's still keeping the weight off. And then they stop, and then they notice that their weight starts creeping up. So those people may need to still stay on a low dose, but a very low dose, and spread out, not even according to the uh, the package insert. Which again, like I just have to say. We're supposed to follow package insert, but patients, we're going to find that patients respond so differently to these that we're going to start having to really individualize. And and that's what we do. Not everybody needs to stay on the medicine long term. Most people will have to be on some form or fashion of it, but there are a subset of people that will be able to come off of it. And this is kind of understanding the, what we call the heterogeneity of obesity, meaning the people are different. Different people are different. We all have, I don't know, different physiologies and different uh, environments and genetics. And so people need to have individualized care. When someone gets a renewal for their prescription, would there become a point if they're doing this through telehealth that someone would say, okay, you're at this weight now, which means that we are going to lower the dose for you, even if they want to maybe keep it at where it's at? We don't force people to come off. Uh, we we offer we offer it if they want, and we'll be there if we want. But people are very uh, sensitive to that because other doctors in the past have forced people to come off, and it uh-huh. and it it can be quite triggering. Like you don't understand. I've done everything my whole life to try to lose weight and keep it off, and this is the first time I feel free from that burden. And so, like. We don't force it. We say, mm-hmm. look, you're at a good weight. What we what we do have, though, we have a safety check in place. Like these newer, met- the terzepatide specifically, Zepbound, it is so powerful that some people will they'll keep losing weight. And if you keep them on the highest dose, they'll go they'll go into what I would consider a, a weight, a, a, such a low weight that it's not healthy. So that becomes less about health and more about like this person's BMI. Like so, I I set the cutoff of the BMI at 22. Um, you know, 18, 18 is considered, you know, underweight. Um, but like really 22, if they're getting below 22, it's, it, it comes, it's, you're not going to get any health benefit below that. 
Right. So, yeah, yeah I, I guess that, that was my that's my question or my concern, really, is that who's checking in to make sure that this isn't going to a dangerous place for these yeah. individuals. So, yeah, I set the protocol there to where basically it's kind of, I call it like landing a plane. So like if they are rapidly losing weight and they're getting, you know, under 25 BMI, they're getting they're going to they're going to look like they're going to shoot past that 22 BMI. Then we start rapidly, not rapidly, but we start titrating down the dose to make sure they don't shoot past it. So we're, we're very careful there. And then that's kind of the basement BMI. We could go to 21 or so if, you know, some people lose weight, just even if we didn't uh, calculate it in their rate uh, necessarily, but like, we try not to go past that. We, we have that in our safety protocols. Right. And I, again, I have an understanding that on your side, you do the best you can in this situation, understanding that telehealth, you're not actually there physically by their side all the time. I would assume there's also an instance where someone might not actually be accurately reporting their weight, uh, which could bring other issues to the forefront. Yeah, it's it's very possible. Um, we recognize that that's kind of one of the the drawbacks of telemedicine, as opposed to bringing them in a, in person, looking at them right on the scale, making sure they're not holding a 45, 45 pound weight uh, on their chest, or you know something like something silly like that. Um, so that, you know those things are you know are are a concern, and we find ways to to minimize that uh, type of situation. But I will say that telemedicine, like the stigma around obesity, people have been traumatized from having to go in, being sitting in chairs that weren't made for their their bodies around a bunch of other people that might be coughing and sputtering because they're, they're coming in for some cold or whatever. And then you're sitting around these other people, not in a comfortable chair to be brought in, maybe weighed in in front of other people it's, it can be very traumatized. And then you sit there and the doctor is behind a computer. The first thing he says is that like, hey, you know, you need to lose weight, right? And they're not even looking at you. The person doesn't even realize that you lost 50 pounds despite your BMI being still in this kind of higher range. And I hear these stories all the time. The reason I bring this up, I hear these stories, the trauma that's been done. And people just want to have a non-stigmatizing, non-biased uh, type of of, of weight health care visit. They just, they just want to be heard. They don't want everything, including their cough and sickness to be attributed to their weight. They, they, you know, if you hear about the person that had, has obesity, they have back pain. It's rare, but you the doctor, like, it's just wait, go lose weight. They didn't even do the exam because they're, they clearly have a bias. They just think everything's due to their weight. And the person had a tumor in their spine. Again, it doesn't happen. That's, that's rare, but those are like the, the, the cases you hear. So yeah. In terms of telemedicine, like removing that barrier of and, and the stigma away from it to where people feel comfortable to finally have those discussions where you don't have to go weighing in front of a whole group of, of people um, and be kind of chastised by uh, the system. Anyway, that, that's just my, that's my <laughs> little, I'm going off on a thing because I, I've thought about it very much and I've talked with so many patients, thousands of patients and they you know, some people do still prefer that in person, of course. And I, there is a strong role for that. And I, yeah. I agree there is, but like telemedicine and especially, I would say, I say chronically monitoring. I was on good morning American, like, can you say continuously? And people don't know what chronically monitoring is. So continuously monitoring where it's like they can message in, they can have a team right then and there uh, proactively helping in between what you usually do or like month to month visits with like a, a normal doctor. But with us, it's like we're there all the time with you. 
with you on the journey. So anyway, sorry, I'm going off. No, you are so fine. You are so fine. What would you say your hopes are for the future of this type of treatment? Yeah. So technology is just going to keep getting better and better. We need to keep improving our ways of of delivering care through telemedicine. I think the future is going to be a hybrid though of, of both. So we need to find ways to um, do good in person. We can't just get rid of in person. You need to be seen in person from time to time. Right now we're, you know, people still have their primary care doctors and they use us and we try to communicate with their primary care doctors. But I think eventually the future is a hybrid version of this. I think technology though, online, people have their people have their phones in their pocket at all time. Imagine having your care team in your pocket at all time, like a dietitian, a strength coach, and and then your app. So for us, it's like our app, you know, you can't always have a person always there, you know, within minutes, but our app to help people through this journey, to make sure they're eating the right things, to make sure they're doing the right physical activity. Uh, even if you don't use us for a prescription, you can still use our app that helps you through this. So I think I, I think the future is making sure that people have a safe journey through it, a, a better quality of life through the journey. People stop the medicines. Oftentimes you see these articles like people don't even stay on these medicines because of the side effects. It's like, well, we have a good track record of pe- keeping people on the medicines because if you minimize the side effects and make sure you're not increasing the dose when they're having side effects, because that's what you see in other in other instances, though, they're going to be having side effects and like, whatever, just keep going up on your dose. It's like, whoa, 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 maybe not go up on the dose. Maybe you still got to get used to this. Maybe we need to adjust the way you're eating uh, and that type of thing before we start thinking about going up in a dose. So I think the the, the future is u- really utilizing good technology, good programming to make sure people can safely use this new technological drug. And the drugs are just going to get better and better. Like they're just, the things that are coming out are just they're, they're crazy. The people, uh, people don't realize what's coming down the pipeline. It's, it's going to be quite different in five to 10 years of what we're going to see. What does better mean to you? So fewer side effects, better weight loss, fewer, fewer times you have to inject, like all the pain points that you see. So like before, when I talked about it, it was like twice a day injection, then it went to once a day, then it went to once a week. And then it went from this amount of weight loss up to this amount of weight loss. So we're going to see better weights. And then, and then there's a concern of like, well, how much of it's fat, how much of it's muscle and bone. Mm -hmm. There there are going to be ways where they're going to decrease the nausea. They're going to find ways to hit the receptors in the brain differently to where you don't cause nausea at all. Like there's think about that. Like all those little pain points are going to just be refined through the years. Um, And I see our uh, role as just, improving the journey while they take these medicines because the, the medicines are inevitable unless there's a smoking gun that we don't know but I, I we haven't seen it there's just piles of data to show the safety of these medicines mm-hmm. i see our role is that facilitating the best quality of life and journey while people are taking these because i think there's going to be a lot of people taking these regardless so yeah i anticipate I'm, I'm curious to know your thoughts on this i anticipate that as these quote unquote get better your words more and more people are, are going to get onto a glp1 medication do you anticipate that there will be a wider acceptance of these medications as we move forward versus the kind of flack that they're getting now yeah, it's it's just it's inevitable, and this is what I'm up against on social media all the time. And what's what's going to happen is that 
it's going to be similar to, I would say, like mental health and, and things like that. Before it was, you know, taboo and, and people didn't understand. And it's like, just pull yourself up on your bootstraps, and, you know, and smile, put your smile on. You have depression, whatever, put a smile on, just cheer up. It's going to be the same with obesity. Instead of just like, hey, you need to put the fork down. They're going to understand the biological underpinnings of it. And this doesn't mean we shouldn't be working on our environment too. People, I, I'll get chastised on Twitter with this kind of straw man, false dichotomy, whatever you want to call it. They're like, but shouldn't we be working on the environment and not just working on these drugs? It's like, yeah, we should be working on the environment too. We need to prevent obesity before it occurs, but we also need tools to help treat the obesity once it occurs too. And, and by the way, there was just a press release. There are companies, all sorts of companies working on how to prevent the obesity uh, in the first place. Because again, once, once people develop the obesity, that's where some physiological changes can happen uh, in the brain. And that's where it's like the food noise, those biological drivers. It's really hard to just willpower yourself out of that. Yeah. And you're really talking about what I think so many people advocate now. It's what can we do from the get-go, especially if you're in a position where you're raising children to keep a healthier environment around because we are truly a product of our environment and having important conversations about what eating well might look like, what you can do to move your body regularly, so many different things that we take on as a responsibility to hopefully live a healthier and happier life. And also be honest that there are going to be situations that feel as though they are beyond our control and that just because someone may want to lose weight doesn't mean that they should be demonized for it. I think that's a, that's a really tough pain point that we're at now in our society. I, as someone who's lost weight herself, I, I know um, how difficult it can be to have other people have an opinion on your body. And when someone has an opinion on your body, when you know personally that you don't feel healthy in your body, it should be your decision on what you want to do moving forward, not the decision of the other. Yeah, right. So you shouldn't feel forced to lose like that. That's the other. So I, I deal with a lot of those people on, online and it's like, look, I'm not going to tell you to, to lose, like force you to lose weight. I'm not going to chastise you if you want to lose weight or if you don't want to lose weight. The options there, you have you have autonomy over your body. Uh, but the thing is, people are jerks. So like, you know, people will say all sorts of things yeah. to be mean from different angles. You, you, if you can't lose weight, you're, you're, you lack the discipline. If you lose weight using uh, trying to do behavior, then you use the, you know, one of these new medicines, then you're taking the easy way out. It's like, just, can I just like live my own life and do what I need to do? Yeah. But now, unfortunately, people are just not, um, not nice people out there. But I, I think, I, I honestly think the perception, the paradigm will shift. We're at that turning point though, where I'd say over the next decade or so, we're going to, it's going to be thinking very differently about this. Well, Dr. Nadolsky, I'm so happy that we were able to have this really in-depth conversation about GLP-1 education. I know that so many individuals are really trying to figure out what's right for them. And I just want to close this off by personally saying that no one should should you into what you do for your body. So make sure that if this is something that you're interested in, you really are taking ownership of your health. You're getting informed. You're not just listening to a podcast like this, but you're talking to an expert one-on-one to make decisions that are right for you and your body, knowing that those decisions and what's right might change 
over time. For those that want to follow up with you, that want to listen to more of what you have to say, keep up with you, how do they do that, Dr. Nadolsky? Yeah, you can do it on uh, so Instagram. I'm at Dr. Nadolsky, D-R-N-A-D-O-L-S-K-Y. I'm on TikTok at Dr. Spencer, um, D-R-S-P-E-N-C-E-R. Uh, at Dr. Nadolsky on Twitter, and then Dr. Spencer Nadolsky on Facebook. You can listen to our Docs Who Lift podcast. It's me and my brother. We 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 get a little goofy on there, kind of giving each other uh, crap, but we go over all the new studies and all the new stuff to think about when it comes to these drugs or anything else related to obesity and health. And of course, like if you want, are interested in our, whether you're on a GLP-1 and you, you know, from your own doctor, you want to join our GLP-1 companion program through Weight Watchers, we'd love to have you there. And if you are thinking about these new medicines and you don't want to go through your own doctor, we'd love to have you in our WW or Weight Watchers clinic. Uh, so you can go to weightwatchers.com uh, to, to get all that information. Beautiful. Thanks so much for your time today. I'm over at Emily Abadi and at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time. <laughs>